please take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We will be reading verses 13 through 18. We will return, Lord willing, to 1 Corinthians next Lord's Day. Now, this is not a text that I preached when we were in Macon, Georgia, involved with our family's needs. I preached other texts there, but this was a text that I referenced and quoted and a text that was much upon my mind and upon my heart. And so we look at it together this morning, First Thessalonians 4, beginning with verse 13. Let us pray. Our Father, enlarge our hearts and open our minds to the truths of thy word. Strengthen us by those things that we find therein. And help us to be people who are constantly living within the book, reading it, enjoying it, fellowshipping with thee in and through it, coming to know ourselves and our desperate need of Christ, coming to know Christ better by faith. And Lord, we are thankful that we also are called to gather for worship under word and sacrament until Christ comes again, and that we are called, Heavenly Father, to, to hear the Word of God proclaimed. We ask that the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, who now takes this two-edged sword, will work within our hearts and souls that which is needed in each life, that we may take the comfort of this text and apply it at all times, to all settings and all needs of life. And help us, Heavenly Father, never to bring disrepute upon thy name, but only honor, and to love the Word of God, and to love it even unto death, or until Christ comes again. And may that love for God's Word characterize this congregation until the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. We begin reading at verse 13, 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the Word of God. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The Word of God. Please be seated. People of God, Jesus is coming again. The Old Testament prophet spoke wonderfully of the return of Christ and of the consummation of history. 
Most often, the first and second comings are spoken of in one breath. For example, in Isaiah 9, we read of the birth of the wonderful child and that the government will be upon his shoulders. Our Lord gave us precious promises of his return. And you will recall that after the ascension of our Lord had taken place, that the angelic beings that were there said, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And then as we turn to other passages in the New Testament, the epistles are filled with promises regarding the return of Christ, but especially in the epistles of the Apostle Paul and the connection between the resurrection and the return of Christ are drawn so very clearly together. You know, I heard someone say this past week that they were speaking with someone, and I've heard other people say similar things, that they don't like reading Paul the Apostle, that he was a cold theologian, and they simply didn't like reading him. And I said, what? What? Yes, he was a logical theologian. He was the great redemptive historical theologian of the church. With, with that, we, we, we cannot have any doubts. But it's logic on fire. And if you would understand all of the Word of God, the key in large measure will be to understand and to come to comprehend and to love what God has written through the Apostle Paul. These promises that we find, especially in the Pauline epistles, revolutionize Christians' view of life and of death. Our crisis culture, when it comes to death, will either mask over death with levity or demonstrate complete despair, or sometimes the levity is there, the masks are there in order to cover up the sense of despair that the unbeliever has. But in verse 13, we read, we do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And so the Christian approach never trivializes death. Death is not a pretty thing. Death is ugly. Death in and of itself is the result of the fall of Adam and of all his posterity in him. But it's transformed through the gospel and becomes a portal unto life. And we live in the joyful hope of the coming of Jesus. We live as Christians with many precious promises of an undefiled, unfading inheritance that belongs to every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Thessalonian Christians here need instruction. They had been awaiting the return of Jesus Christ, but in the meantime, loved ones had died. And so they're confused. Will they miss out? Will those who have died miss out? Will the bridal veil be exchanged for a shroud when Jesus comes with all the promise of his glory? Are they somehow going to miss out uh, on participation in that glorious eternal state that he brings or in some other way miss out in the glories of the Savior? And so the Apostle Paul says, no, they're not going to miss out. As a matter of fact, the Christian dead are prioritized And he instructs the Thessalonians in the Christian hope and us as well. And he does so essentially with two encouragements. Now, I've learned all kinds of exegetical details since I last preached this text, but very little of it will be in the sermon. We're going to look really at those two things, those two encouragements. 
The first encouragement is found in verse 14, and it is the bedrock of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, upon which our Christian lives are based, and even the resurrection of the dead is, uh, is also based. So in verse 14 we read, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. The resurrection is so essential to our understanding of the Christian faith. It is so essential to our everyday Christian living. It is so essential to our understanding of life and death and the resurrection that is to come. The resurrection does not have the place in our lives that it should. It is, as I said, bedrock. It is central to our understanding of the gospel, and there is not a day in which we, we walk on this earth that we should not think our Savior has been bodily raised from the dead, and I will be also. Jesus Christ was not abandoned to the grave, and the Bible stresses and the epistles of Paul stress that that resurrection of Jesus Christ was a bodily resurrection, not some spirit resurrection only, but the bodily resurrection of Jesus, that the resurrection of Jesus was the turning point of the ages, that it is the proof of the deity of Christ, that it is the proof that the wrath of God poured out upon him will not be poured out upon those who trust in Jesus Christ, It is also the guarantee of the Christian's resurrection from the dead. Now, you will have noticed that in this passage, the Apostle Paul refers to the Christian dead as those who sleep. Now, he's not saying that the soul sleeps. He is saying the body put in the ground sleeps, and the Christian dead are referred to as sleeping. The Lord Jesus died and bore the curse of the law for us and bore our death for us, but Christians are said to sleep. The body laid in the grave is said to sleep. Sleep refers to the body. Now, why sleep? Well, it's not a euphemism. Paul means to teach us something very, very important about the body at death. It was Leon Morris, as far as I know, who was the first to say this simple thing, but it's become my own, and I've said it for years. The body of the Christian is said to sleep because sleeping people wake up. And that is extraordinary, isn't it? Sleeping people wake up. In other words, sleep is not destruction. And Paul's connection between the resurrection, the connection he draws between the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the resurrection of Christians is found here in verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And then he goes on to unpack the return of Christ and the resurrection of the body when Jesus comes again. You saw that, of course, in the passage that Pastor McDonald read to us this morning from 1 Corinthians 15, especially when we come to verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who sleep. And so Christ's resurrection is the first fruits. It is the first portion of that entirely anticipated harvest that is to come so that that first portion represents 
the harvest that is already in principle taking place. So with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave, the resurrection at the last day is guaranteed, yes, but not only guaranteed, it has already begun in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. That's the wonder of it. And so in Thessalonians, there is no reason, he says to them, to be uneasy about your Christian loved ones. And you might recall how in Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul dwells upon this return of the Lord Jesus and what it means for believers when he says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The promise then is that the bodies of of believers who were placed in the grave will be raised by the power of God and so transformed that we actually will will be like Christ in our resurrection bodies. And so you see, resurrection should be most prominent in our thinking and in our feeling and in our Christian living. Is it true for you that the resurrection has that place in your thinking and in your Christian living? That's the first encouragement, inseparable from the second, and the second encouragement is simply the encouragement of Christ's return and what happens when Jesus Christ does return. In verses 15 and 16, look again, we read, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. But the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Of course, you probably know that here the term that is used for the coming of Christ is the term parousia. The term parousia was a word that denoted the visit of a king or the visit of an emperor. Well, the king is coming. The king is returning. And of course, the idea that this is a secret rapture that the world will not see, that there are two future returns of Christ with two future resurrections is simply far into the New Testament. There is one return of Christ. It will be bodily. It will be visible and immediately followed by the final judgment after which there will be the eternal state. We find here, of course, that the separation of body and soul are not permanent. He brings with him those who have fallen asleep. That is to say, those whose bodies are still in the grave, their souls being with the Lord, those souls are brought with Christ, so that those souls will be reunited with their resurrection bodies. So that death for the believer is the prelude to resurrection. The reason we go to heaven when we die is also because it is part of the everlasting eternal life that is purchased for us on the cross and wrought in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so Christians who are alive when Jesus returns, he says, they're not going to miss out. They're not going to to miss out on the glories of his return and the glories that come to the church in his return. Uh, As a matter of fact, they will be raised and reunited, and this will happen first. 
their souls will be reunited to resurrection bodies before those who are alive and remain when Jesus comes again. And no Christian will be left out. Let's read these verses again. They're so powerful, beginning with 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So no Christian is left out. God doesn't forget his people. This is the monumental event for which we should long as believers and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that you will use your sanctified imagination as we simply look at the text now and ask the question, what happens when Jesus comes again and raises the dead? Well, the first thing that happens is that Jesus comes with what is well translated here, a shout of command. The Lord himself will come, as Ellicott says, his own august personal presence. He comes as a conqueror with a shout of command. It will be a mighty summons when Jesus comes again. Just think of how in John 5, it is the voice of Jesus, we are told, that brings the resurrection of the just and the unjust. He's focusing on the resurrection of the just here because he's bringing comfort to the people of God. A mighty summons. Think of of Jesus there before Lazarus' tomb when he says to him, Lazarus, come forth. And yet we have something far, far greater here when he speaks to the dead and he calls them to come forth from the tomb. Christ's own authoritative, almighty, stentorian voice will say to the world that he comes as conqueror and king and will call forth the dead. This shout of command points to the fact that the New Testament teaches that the return of Christ will be public and open. And so Jesus returns with a sovereign summons for his own people whom he loves to come forth. Now, the word here, command, is usually used in military contexts. So he returns with a sovereign summons, a military command. Jesus came the first time in utter humiliation. The Son of God, the infinite Son of God, came down, 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 infinitely down, and became a man without ceasing to be God, and suffered and bled and died and rose from the dead and ascended on high, and our God-man mediator now rules sitting upon his throne in heaven as our mediatorial king, infinitely exalted. And so when he comes again, he will not come in this utter humiliation in which he came before. He comes as God-man, but as exalted, risen Lord, 
and he comes as a conquering king. So he comes with a shout of command. And then we are told he comes with the voice of an ark, of the archangel. And there's only one uh, mentioned in the Bible, and that's Michael. Michael wars against Satan, according to Jude verse 9. And Paul is telling us that the voice is the one of victory. This evidently is referenced because we are to understand it is the final conquering of Satan and his angels. And I've mentioned to you before, in Jude 9, in this passage, every time I read it, I think of Jacob Epstein's um, sculpture at Coventry Cathedral where Michael is, is defeating Satan. Satan is there under his feet. And then thirdly, there will be the trump of God that brings to mind Old Testament holy warfare. Think of the trumpets at the fall of Jericho. Or think also of the trumpets announcing the year of Jubilee, so that the trumpets were announcing freedom and deliverance and redemption for the people of God. Trumpets accompany revelations of God, such as the law at Sinai. Roman soldiers use the trumpets to strike tents to form lines, to announce a march. And all of these things might have come to various minds as they were familiar with the Old Testament or with Roman life as they read this from the Apostle Paul there at the church in Thessalonica. As a matter of fact, I just read recently that there were three trumpets that were used in Rome in the armies when they called them to battle. There was a first, a second, and then when the third came, everyone knew it was time for battle. And the cry went forth, are you ready for war? And there was to be the lusty response, yes. And so we will be called to that final battle that the Lord will engage in. This reference to trumpets, of course, is found also in 1 Corinthians 15 in that wonderful passage in which the Apostle Paul says, and remember, we'll soon come to chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed." For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so we live listening for the trumpet to sound. So the trump sounds the everlasting jubilee of which Leviticus 25 was just a type and shadow, the final revelation of the redemptive power of Christ to be seen in the history of the world as history is brought to an end. And then we are told, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Well, they have to rise. 
They have no choice in the matter. Christ rose from the dead. Therefore, those in union with Christ rise from the dead. They will rise before the living believers who will be changed and transformed. Far from being left out, they are the priority. And just as God spoke and the world first came into being, so the Lord Jesus speaks and new creation is constituted. Just as when he spoke to your soul in resurrection power and brought you to resurrection life, so also that same power that will raise the dead in the last day that you have now experienced already within your heart will, that same power will, that same voice of power will raise the Christian dead. Who will be raised? The Bible teaches, as I've said, a general resurrection of the dead, but here the focus is on the redeemed, and it says specifically the dead. This is so beautiful, people of God, the dead in Christ, in Christo, in Christ shall rise first. When believers and unbelievers pass from this world, it all may look the same to the family or the hospice worker or whoever it may be, but they are not the same. The believer goes to heaven. The unbeliever suffers in hell. The believer's body is in union with Christ. The unbeliever's body is not in union with Christ. And when we are told that the dead in Christ shall rise, how often do I stress at graveside services that, that Christ died for this believer, not only for this believer's soul, but the whole of this Christian, the believer's body and soul, the body is in union with Christ, not only the believer's soul. And so the believer's body is in union with Christ. And God lovingly, solicitously looks over the decay of every particle of this body and loves the body and soul of this believer and will raise this body up in glory when Jesus Christ comes again. The believer will rise incorruptible. We will be like the Savior in his resurrection body. Use your imaginations, people of God. Millions will stand up out of their graves. What a miracle awaits us at the return of Christ. And then we are told, then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. The church will meet the Lord in the clouds, in the air, in the clouds. Do you remember Psalm 104, verse 3? He maketh the clouds his chariot. Or Acts 1, 9, that, that, that a cloud received the Savior out of the disciples' sight, and they are told that he will return in like manner. This is a meeting of praise, people of God. This is a meeting of welcome. When the Lord Jesus welcomes his own 
whom he has purchased with his own shed blood and for whom he rose from the dead. And it uses this word to seize or carry away by force. Uh, That's the word that uh, you hear the word rapture. Well, that's the word here, to seize or carry away by force. It is irresistible grace, if you will. They must be raised up, seized, carried away into the clouds, into the air. And probably the reference to the air here is underscored because the Jews regarded it as demonic turf. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2 that the evil one is the prince and power of the air. What is that Christ? His victory is complete, and after this the judgment takes place, and the evil one will be destroyed forever, and we will cry, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Let nothing dampen or remove this comfort from your heart. There was an attempt in the early church for that to be done. There are attempts now that that be done. Scoffers will arise, we are told in, in 2 Peter 3, saying, where's the promise of his coming? Well, he will come again. The issue here is the authority of the Bible. All things hang there. And the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Do you believe that Jesus Christ rose bodily from the dead? then it's no problem to believe that the Christian dead will be raised. Now let me bring a few implications for us. The apostle says in verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. And so he says in the church there, you need to encourage one another. Don't don't be concerned about, about the Christian dead. They are with the Lord when they die. They will be raised And the Thessalonians really loved one another, and they needed more knowledge, a truer understanding of what Paul taught. The dead will enjoy Christ's return along with the living. They should be active in encouraging one another, and so should we. And let me say, this congregation does that. So that we needn't fear death. Do you remember my telling you once about Henry Venn? That uh, great 18th century Anglican evangelical minister that when the doctor would come to see him, he would speak to the doctor about Christ, and he was so excited to see Christ, the doctor told him he was afraid he wouldn't die because his, his heart rate always went up when he talked about, about uh, going to be with Christ. Well, there, the experience of death itself, there may be apprehension. You've never been through it, but you should not fear death because of Jesus. And that means also taking this context into consideration, we should not be overburdened. And the operative word is overburdened at a loss in death, for it is no loss to the Christian who has died. And the Christian's outlook is different from that of the world. Neglect of these truths is great loss. We are called to live in these realities as believers, but we needn't live as if life were meaningless, as does the unbeliever. And the answer, if you ask why, is found in verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep.
That one fact, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, interprets all these facts. And when Paul speaks of comfort, this is the strongest possible contrast with the paganism of his day and the paganism of our day as well. So that we can sing out, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Christ is risen. A future has been given with the past. Grief is right. It is right to grieve. But it is kept within proper understanding and bounds when it is placed in the context of the resurrection of our Savior from the dead and the promise of His return, keeping that front and center. So grief mingled with consolation. Calvin says the resurrection is the mother of patience. It helps us to be patient until Christ comes again, patient until our own deaths, patient until all of this comes about. And we are forbidden to grieve in the manner. We are not forbidden to grieve. We are forbidden to grieve in the manner of unbelievers. And we are not alone. Yes, Christ is with us, but his point here is that we are not alone, that we're a church. And we love each other and care for each other and pray for each other and hold one another up. And here we find a supreme manifestation of the communion of the saints. And no Christian here is too young to learn this, as we ourselves have experienced recently with notes from children in our congregation. But you know, this promise is not only something that ministers to us in our times of bereavement when we, when we are at the graves of loved ones who are believers. This promise should be with us at all times as we experience the fallenness of this world, as we experience the, the grief, the heart grief to see the destruction of our culture. As we, This promise is for every day. It's for when you get up in the morning and you go to work. It's for all that you experience in life. But then also, taking this whole context in mind, it also encourages holiness of life. Now, part of your holiness of life, part of your Christian piety, is learning how to grieve Christianly. And so, holiness of life is encouraged by our understanding that Christ is coming again. Look at chapter 5 for a moment. Paul goes on to say, on the heels of what we have just looked at, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. 
but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love for a helmet, the hope of salvation, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another, he says again, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And so every generation of Christians is called to keep alert and to live holy lives in view of the coming of Jesus. Herman Bobbing said, the pilgrim church can expect a cross, a persecution, and suffering. The New Testament does not recommend <clears throat> the New Testament does not recommend virtues that lead believers to conquer the world, but rather patiently to endure its enmity. And that is all we can expect as a church in this age from this world. But let me say also, if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's coming again. And he's coming in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel. And so these verses that we just read in chapter 5, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. You need to take to heart, because tomorrow is too late when Jesus comes again. Or tomorrow is too late when suddenly there's death and destruction that you didn't calculate upon. Jonathan Edwards preached that great sermon, masterful sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And his original manuscript is in the Beinecke Library at Yale. I've never seen it. But I'm told that it's tear-stained. It's tear-stained. So believer, the Bible's teaching on the return of Christ helps us to persevere with patience, not only at the graves of those whom we love who are the Lord's, but in whatever we experience in this life. And in closing, I ask you to drink in these words from the historic Reformed Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 52. How does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? The answer is, in all my distress and persecution, I turn my eyes to the heavens and confidently await as the judge, the very one who has already stood the trial in my place before God and so has removed the curse for me. All his enemies and mine, he will condemn to everlasting punishment, but me and all his chosen ones. He will take along with him into joy, the joy and glory of heaven. Indeed, the joy and glory of the new heavens and the new earth. Amen. Amen.